Bibles to the Psalms. We'll be reading Psalm 2, all of it. Before we hear God's precious, infallible, authoritative word read, let us go to Him again, asking for His help. Our God, our great King, You who ordered all things for Your own glory and for our good, we pray that You would, by Your Spirit, order the reading of the text and the preaching of this text for Your glory and for our illumination that we might understand and appreciate the kingship of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Hear now the Word of God, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The world is a rather funny place at times, isn't it? But not everything is ha-ha funny. Some things are laughable in the sense that they ought to be mocked. Perhaps we have a recent case of this situation. I heard recently of a woman in Brazil whose action might have been the first of its kind. Now, even though this happened in Brazil... Given our own cultural moment, we can imagine this taking place in our own country. This 37-year-old woman married a doll, about a five-foot, raggedy Andy-looking thing. A doll. After complaining to her mother about how tired she was being single and having no one to dance with, her mother created this doll for her daughter. And we're told it was love at first sight. The woman, surprisingly, and who knows how, found herself pregnant, but did not want to deliver this doll unmarried, being the respectable woman she is. A couple months later then, she and Marcello got married. She would soon deliver this baby doll. Apparently, the the gestation period is much briefer when dolls are in the womb. The wedding ceremony was supported by about 250 guests, and you can see everyone clapping and watching this lady and Marcello, who is supported by a dolly, 
dancing the night away. She's finally found her dancing partner. After spending a week's vacation in Rio de Janeiro, they returned home where she was supported by an on-site doctor and a nurse to facilitate the delivery of this baby doll. And women who have given labor, uh, you can, um, I don't know, be surprised that it only took 35 minutes for this doll to be delivered. Quick delivery. What is perhaps most baffling in this whole thing is that she has had many supporters. She even was on a a TV show being interviewed. She had those 250 supporters attending her wedding. I believe that was perhaps more than what we had at our wedding. And ours was a legitimate marriage. We live in a world where this deranged thinking is becoming more and more common and more and more supported by everyone who is claiming, live your truth. Whatever is true for you, Live it. Be your true self. As Christians, what is our response? When we see the desecration of marriage, when we see the devaluing of biological life, what do we do? Are we to lament? Yes, we must lament, to be sure, as this lady is in great need of the saving grace of God. But is mockery off the table? No. And it shouldn't be, because the Bible is full of divine mockery at the insanity and at the flagrantly disobedient ways of the world. In Psalm 2, we see both divine mockery on the one hand, and then we see a turn, a call to turn away from the folly of the world and to turn to the Lord. We see in this psalm that the Son of God, as the Lord's anointed, is to be served with joyful trembling. We look again at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So Psalm 2 combines with Psalm 1 to introduce the entire book of Psalms. I mentioned last time that Psalm 1 alone is not the introduction. We must take 1 and 2 together. And taken together, these two Psalms leave every reader with this basic message, that the wise, blessed life is joyful, worshipful service of Christ the King. In Psalm 1, we saw the psalmist who painted two ways of living. We saw, on the one hand, the way of folly, on the other, the way of wisdom. And here in Psalm 2, we see these two paths looking like rebelliousness or reverence. Now, we read from Acts 4 that Peter attributes this psalm to David, that David spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this psalm. Even though there's no superscript that mentions that it was authored by David, we know from later revelation that it was. And so I'll be referring to this psalm as a psalm of David's. So David asks the questions in verse 1 as someone who is in the stronger position, like a parent who sees his children scheming to get what they want, even after they have been told by their parents what they're expected to do. We wonder why the children use all their energy to disobey. Here we have nations that are restless. We see them in rage. We see that they have assembled themselves against God. And a sympathetic observer sees the nations, we sees the peoples plotting in vain, and they say, is the man sticking it to you again? Well, what you need to do is stick it to the man. 
It's your time. Do not let the man get to you. In fact, let us get you some more supporters. Let us get you some more petitions, and let's protest with you. Let's give it to him. Don't be down. When David says that these nations are plotting, he uses the same word that is used in Psalm 1, translated meditate. And so what we have here is that while the righteous wise man is mouthing the law of the Lord quietly to himself, meditating on it day and night, as he's doing that, the ungodly foolish nations are whispering behind closed doors plans to, to dethrone God. You can see them rubbing their sinister hands together. You can hear them plotting, but we're told that it's plotting in vain. Since we, the Mock family, still have some young children in the home, like many parents, we own a baby monitor, something that we can use to hear and look at our children. We don't use it for our 16-year-old, of course. I don't think he would thank us much for that. But it is comical at times looking at our children, just listening in on their conversations. Some of these children imagine that as soon as mom and dad walk out of the door, they, mom and dad, can no longer hear what is happening in in the darkness. And perhaps, in truth, we don't actually need a baby monitor anymore. These boys are about as quiet as a garbage truck barreling through a neighborhood. With their tiny but thunderous feet, they jump off their bunk beds in order to keep playing. And they have many toys with which to play. And they love playing. With their whispers, it might as well be shouts. They strategize with one another how they can keep on playing. And to be sure, these boys are full of energy and not malice. So the comparison is not the same. They're not, they're not like these godless nations that are plotting in vain, that are setting themselves against the Lord, against the Lord's anointed. But these boys, and any child who is not going right to bed when it is bedtime, have disobeyed the parents' bedtime rules. And like the nations of folly, they seem entirely unaware that someone above them, mom, dad, someone above them is hearing everything, seeing everything. Well, who is above these nations? Who is above these kings of the earth that have set themselves? Of course, it is the Lord. He is seeing everything. He is listening in on everything. We see in verse 3 the affirmation, uh, the position of the kings of the earth. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The rulers of the earth join forces to break away from the Lord. True freedom is always a good thing. Freedom from tyranny, from oppression is good and ought to be sought. Paul even told the Corinthian slaves that if they could get their freedom, then they should do that. If they had opportunity to become free, then they should work to that. But not everyone had that opportunity. Not everyone had uh, that privilege and so they were called to be content where they're, where they're placed. But if they can get freedom, then yes, they should do it. So we must ask ourselves, what are we seeking our freedom from? The wicked kings of the earth try to break free from what they perceive are divine bonds, shackles. They think, well, as, as soon as we can snap off these shackles, as soon as we can break these bonds, then finally we'll be free. 
They foolishly think that the Lord's ways are oppressive. When in fact, they are the ones who are abusers. They are the ones who are oppressing. They are the ones who are lording it over the people. They foolishly think that by by breaking free, they actually will be free. The hard reality, of course, is that they are free only to sin, which is, of course, actually slavery. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8 that your will is to do the will of your father. Well, who's their father? Well, the father is the devil. And the devil's not putting a gun to their to their heads, saying, you must obey me. No, Jesus says, your will, your desire, what you are inclined to do is evil. It is the same will as your father, like father, like son. So you freely disobey within your own nature. You're enslaved to sin. In fact, Paul says that we can't escape slavery. We are either slaves to righteousness over slaves to sin. We are going to subject our members to righteousness or to rebelliousness. Got to serve somebody, as the song says. Psalm 9:16 says, "The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands." That's a promise that we hopefully would hold dear. But the wicked will end up being trapped by the work of their own hands. Perhaps this is what gives um, utterance to the, f- the common phrase that we say, I, I told you so. We, t- we say, we warn somebody, don't we? You shouldn't do that. Children, you shouldn't be playing in that hornet's nest. If you play in that hornet's nest, what's going to happen is you're going to get stung. And what do we do if the child ignores our counsel and then gets stung? Well, perhaps compassion, but also coupled with a, I told you so. If you had just listened. But no, the work of your hands brought about ruin. You brought ruin upon yourself. The same thing takes place with the nations who plot. They plot in vain. They set themselves against the Lord, against the Lord's anointed. Yet they are then ensnared by their own works. They are, they are, they are becoming destroyed by their own evil work. So when has raging against the anointed man upstairs ever proven successful in the long run? Consider Satan. Though he would direct a third of the demonic darts against the Lord, he ended up crushed under the king's foot. Or consider Adam and Eve. They sought to know good and evil for themselves, but they ended up getting themselves dead and gone, spiritually dead and gone from the Garden of Eden. Or consider the Babylonites. They erected a tower to make a name for themselves, and they ended up getting themselves exiled, spread across the world. Or consider King Nebuchadnezzar raging against the Lord, left him insane in the membrane, as the song goes. He was crazy. He was literally insane because of what he had done. If he had only repented, if he had only bent the knee, or as we've been covering through the Gospel of Mark, the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, all of their shouts to crucify Jesus did not steady the temple. It was brought down. 
You know what they say, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. In Acts 4, we see a display of the downfall of these nations that have plotted in vain. After Peter and John were released by the Jewish council for preaching the gospel, they praised God. They quoted Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, and they rejoiced in the fulfillment of these words when the leaders opposed the Christ. The world's leaders all joined against the Lord. They all joined against the Lord's anointed. The Romans under Pontius Pilate, the Edomites under Herod, the Gentiles and Israel under her leaders, they all plotted, but they plotted in vain. They all schemed against the Savior. They all mumbled against the Messiah, but all of their energy could not keep Jesus in the grave. Amen. And so it is for all of church history. Nations will rage and rage on until they relent. Oh, and they will relent. That promise that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, some, some of them will be forced to bow. Some of them will be forced to confess. And they will be frustrated, eternally frustrated, under the kingship of Christ. Take comfort, dear ones, that the wicked will always be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Oh, at times it looks like the wicked prosper, but they will end up being destroyed. If they do not trust in Jesus, they will be overcome. Rejoice that all the king's horses and all the king's men will never be able to put together all their poor Humpty Dumpties who set themselves against the Lord and the Lord's anointed. America's leaders can desecrate marriage in the name of justice and equality. They can even mutilate the body in the name of tolerance and inclusion, but they will only end up eternally ruined by the reign of God. And so though they rage, that rage will never dethrone the reign of God. We see the reign of God, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The wicked are frustratingly fruitless, we see in the first few verses. And here in the next following verses, we see that their folly is a funny spectacle as God sees it. He looks at everything and he laughs. He mocks them. It is clear that the Lord and his anointed own all things, that they win all things. What is the Lord's posture to the plots of the kings, to all of those board meetings behind closed doors, to all of those hushed conversations, to those unleaked emails, to those deleted tweets? Laughter. Mockery. There is a place for divine and prophetic mockery against the recalcitrant, against the hardened kings. All of the godless efforts of the world's leaders amount to the stuff of Babel. They say, oh, let us make a tall tower to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And the triune Lord says, let us come down and check out all this cute little thing that they're trying to do here. Look at that. This is so funny. They think that they can come up here and dethrone us. They think that they can come up here and make a name for themselves and exalt themselves. Oh, it's funny. Look how feeble their efforts are. Who do they think they are? They think themselves gods. Oh, but they are mere men. 
We can laugh at the attempts of the world to govern a people. What do we do when we hear that the gas prices are because of gas station owners? What do we do when, we, uh, when people think that it is liberating to join with a rag doll in holy matrimony? What do we do when a 300-pound woman says that she has thin privilege because she doesn't have to buy a second seat on the airplane? What do we do when the sexes, we're told, are so malleable that we should now rejoice to learn that people have finally realized their true gender, whether it's onion gender or a human-avian hybrid gender, just two of the limitless genders that are given these days? The material for a good stand-up piece has become the breaking news of the people who think that they have broken the bonds of the anointed. But the Lord will not be mocked. In fact, the Lord will be the one doing the mocking. Indeed, the son who took on the mockery of the world is now dishing it out. Next week, in the morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus as mocked and murdered. But here, in Psalm 2, we are considering that he has received the kingdom. He has ascended to his Father. He has received the ends of the earth as his possession. And he is, in Psalm 2, in this position of mockery, holding them in derision, laughing at them and their feeble efforts. The script that the world is writing would be tragic if its author were not the sinless Lord who penned their script to show how utterly ridiculous the way the world really is. Some of us might think that the world is just getting worse and worse. I don't see it that way. I see how ridiculous things are in some areas as God's kindness, as God's showing people how foolish following the world really is. I see it as God waking people up. It's ridiculous to think that there, are, that there is more than two genders. It's ridiculous to even consider being married to a ragdoll. It is laughable. And we ought to laugh at that. Some of you were hesitant to, to laugh at, at that point in the introduction of the sermon. Should I laugh? Yes, you should. Because it is laughable. It's crazy. You're not thinking rightly if you are engaged in that kind of activity. If you're entertaining that as something, as a legitimate way of living. No, the Lord has clearly set forth through creation, through his special revelation, how we are and how we ought to be. And it is wise. And the way the world is foolishness. Oh, my look wise at times. But it is complete folly, insanity. It is not thinking clearly. The world is not going to hell in a handbasket. Christ is revealing its laughability with pristine clarity. Again, this is the kindness from Christ the King. And so the Father laughs. But he also laughs because he has established his Son. As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. The Son, the only begotten Son of God, is the true eternal King on the holy hill. He is the head of the church. 
This is how the New Testament authors have understood Psalm 2, a text that they used, they say, speaks liberally of Christ. And as we saw, Peter and John took the nation's rage as occurring at Jesus' crucifixion. We saw that in Acts 4. In verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul picks up this, this verse in Acts 13, verses 33, and he applies this verse to say that the resurrection proves the kingship of Christ, that the great today is that day of resurrection. And in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is used throughout John's revelation. He, he takes the kingship of Christ as a present reality. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is not one day, Jesus, we hope you will be the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is right now the ruler of the kings of the earth. In chapter 2, 27, anticipating Jesus' coming, Jesus will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Or in chapter 12, speaking of the incarnation, the male child to be born will rule the nations. Or in 19, verse 15, speaking of the Christ who judges, Jesus rides with a white horse, sword in his mouth, iron scepter in his hand, and he will rule over them as he treads the Father's winepress of wrath. This is a present kingship that is not confined to the heavens, but it is over heaven and earth. He is right now reigning. Remember, he ascended to the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That session means seated with the purpose of ruling. That's what a session does. The group of elders is rightly called a session when it is governing the affairs of the church, when it is ruling, when it is making decisions. But the thing is, Jesus is doing that all the time. He doesn't meet once a month with the Father or the Spirit and say, okay, let's now rule. Let's consider the affairs of the world. He is right now eternally reigning. The Father said to his only begotten Son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. As one pastor rightly asked, do we think that the Son failed to ask the Father? He says, you know what? I don't really care if I have the nations, my heritage. You see, you put this out before me, Father, that the ends of the earth will be my possession. You know what? I'm okay. I'll pass. Or he gets to heaven sits next to his dad, says, you know the thing you mentioned? It doesn't matter. No, of course not. This is his gift from the Father. He has a people. Why would he not ask the Father for the very thing that the Father offered to him? Father forbid the Son would not ask. The nations are a gift from the Father to the Son. You could even say a Christmas present that awaited him at his exaltation, one that is growing bigger and bigger as Christ's kingship keeps on keeping on. And so, dear ones, let us therefore act 
like Christ owns all and wins all. Let us now pray as if Christ will be given the nations. Take comfort, dear ones, that the nations are not a lost cause, though we might consider them to be, since, again, we are thinking the world's getting worse and worse. The nations are for the Son. They're not a lost cause. God's not writing them off. They are, right now, the mission of the Son who is King. He is right now, as we speak, and has been doing so for many years. He is subduing his enemies. He is making a people out of darkness and into light. He is converting the nations. Why would we then baptize and disciple the nations? Because he is king, because he has all authority given him in heaven and earth. That's why we go. That's why we pray. Because we know that there are people in nation whatever that will bend the knee. This is Paul's posture. He says, I endured everything for the sake of the elect. I know that wherever I go, there are God's people. God is going to convert people. So I must go. The Son is on a mission to rescue people. And he is king, so he will surely do it. No one can thwart his will. No one can stay his hand as he executes his omnipotence. Let us now proclaim the Lordship of Christ. All of Christ for all of life. Verse 7 becomes our marching orders, becomes our mission. We will tell of the decree. The Lord said to the Son, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. That is our pronouncement. That is what we get to do. We get to proclaim the kingship of Christ. And when we do that, and through the proclamation, people are changed. And as people are changed, nations are changed. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation become saved, become changed. So we must proclaim the lordship of Christ. Let us also now be patient as the Son works to subject all things to the Father. There is one thing that Christ calls his people to. It is patience. Let us think of long-haul Christianity. You see the world, and you might think, a lot of people that need to be saved, and you'd be right. You think, the last 2,000 years, a lot of people have been saved. You see, the, the movement of Christ the King from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, how the gospel came to us, that is itself a testimony of God the Son working powerfully. But he's not done. So we must be patient. If people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be saved, that's going to take some time. We should expect him to keep working And so we should be patient as he works through us, his people. And let us perform our duties as though Christ is king, for so he is. As dad, as mom, as husband, as as wife, as son, as daughter, as teacher, as lawyer, as concrete owner, as widow, as whatever you are, Christ is king over you. And he has given you specific responsibilities, and you know what they are. They are found in the word. So you can daily perform your respective duties, knowing that Christ 
is governing all of your affairs for his glory and for your good. What a glorious reign we have here of the Son of God, the Lord's anointed. But there is finally also refuge. Because Christ owns all things, because Christ wins all things, he deserves all things. As one person said, we live in a Psalm 2 world. And because we live in a Psalm 2 world, we worship and call everyone to do the same. David calls the kings of the earth to do what the righteous love to do, which is to worship the Son. We awake under the Lordship of Christ. Indeed, we, we, can, we can go to sleep because of his Lordship. If Christ is not king, you should never go to sleep. You should always be awake. Trying to control things. But because Christ is king, you can, as David says in Psalm 3, lie down and sleep. And you can wake up again because the Lord sustains you. So when we wake up, we go about our days, we consider our responsibilities, and we ask, how can I joyfully serve Christ my King today? In this conversation, at work, in this conflict, with this diaconal matter, with this session matter, with this treasury matter, how can I serve Christ as I ministering to my children and the, the, the routine, the just humdrum of the day. As I go to work and face that employee, that boss who has it in for me, how can I joyfully serve Christ, my King? Certainly Christ is King over all of those areas, over every inch of creation. And the world's leaders are no different they are under the lordship of Christ, except that many do not acknowledge Christ as king. Failure to see Christ as king, however, does not make him any less king. You can't say, well, I don't acknowledge your kingship, so you're not my king. We know that some people have tried to, to say that of presidents, not my president. Well, he actually is your president, whether you like it or not. Christ really is your king, whether you like it or not. And we pray that you will like it, and we will give you the gospel, and if you believe it, you will like it. You will love that kingship. You will love that king, because he is perfectly lovable. It is not the case that there are two kings vying for ultimate allegiance. For instance, that there is Jesus on the one hand, and there is equally powerful Satan on the other, and Satan is king, and he's winning right now. God forbid. Is the devil the Lord's anointed? Certainly not. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If the father sets the son as king, the son is king. And no one is going to dethrone the son. So no, Satan is not king. No, Satan is not ruler of this world. He is subjected to Christ. I was thinking about the temptations that the devil um, extends to the Son in Matthew 4 and says, well, if you just bow down and worship me, I'm going to 
I'm going to give you all these kingdoms. Well, the father beat the, the devil to the punch. The father says in Psalm 2 to the son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your heritage. The, end, the, the ends of the earth, your possession. This was from eternity past. And the son doesn't accept Satan's offer. Of course, Satan couldn't deliver. But the father can deliver, and he has. So it's not that two kings are opposing one another, that they're you know, equally powerful. It's that Christ is king, and he is waiting, and he is working patiently for everyone to get on board, all the while ruling over all. The kings of the earth are no less commanded to bend the knee and confess the Christ than anyone else is. And this kiss and this confession would certainly have significant effects. Laws will be more just, policies more righteous, mercy much wider, businesses more fruitful, schools more faithful to the word of God, and all the people in that given land exponentially blessed. The rulers of the earth have their own spheres. We acknowledge this. Romans 13 acknowledges this. But they are to operate under the kingship of Christ all the same. As Revelation 21 affirms, the kings of the earth will bring their honor and glory into the Christian church. As one man says, to the extent that the kings of the earth are separated from the people of God, to that same extent they are being disobedient. These are not two separate kingdoms. These are spheres that can be distinguished, but they have their point of unity in the one true king. And the church, then as the kingdom of priests, takes up David's word to rulers. As a church, we warn kings of the earth to be wise. We warn them. We, we did this at the denominational level with Overture 13, which the GA report mentions. But Overture 13 passed um, unanimously. And Overture 13 says, for the stated clerk of our denomination to write a letter to the nation's leaders, calling them to repent of murder in the womb, to repent of abortion, and to uh, acknowledge it as wrong. And we're thankful that this didn't have any hiccups, that it passed so well. And that's one way that we as a denomination can call the kings of the earth, the magistrates, to be warned. It is a kindness to them, isn't it? If you continue to sanction the abortion of millions of babies, you will have to pay for that. Christ is king, and he will execute justice upon those who reject his word. And as a church, we Christians can call leaders to serve the Lord with fear and joy. To serve the Lord with fear because he is the true eternal king who is worthy of reverence. And joy because he is the king worth serving. So write to your legislators, governors, senators, vote those godless leaders out of office, elect godly men for office, men who acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Speak up at school boards saying enough is enough with this God-hating sexuality, with this woke theology. Cry out in the spirit of John Knox, Lord, give us America or we die. 
Verse 10 was on John Lambert's mind at his last moments on earth, all the way back in 1538. He had some personal disagreements about England's position on the Lord's Supper. He discussed this disagreement with a man named Dr. Taylor, who preached a sermon on the sacrament. What was a private conversation was soon brought to the attention of King Henry VIII, who believed that it was his duty to try heretics personally himself. And after hours of interrogation, Lambert stood firm in defense of his position. And he was asked, will you live or will you die? Lambert's response was, I commend my soul into God's hands, but my body I yield to your clemency. Henry VIII says, if you commit yourself to my judgment, then you will die. And Lambert was sentenced to die by burning. As Lambert was being roasted, as his legs were becoming stumps, he was hoisted above with pike staffs. His final words recorded, landed on verse 10. Now ye kings understand, and ye which judge the earth, be wise and learned. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice in him with trembling. And as he lifted his fingers, flaming with fire, he boldly proclaimed to this murderous king, none but Christ, none but Christ. Whether we live or whether we die, we make it our aim to please Christ, both in private and public confession, that all may bow the knee, kiss the Son, and find eternal refuge in Christ, who is King. Let's pray. O gracious God, our almighty King, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us refuge in Christ as our King. We thank you, Lord, that the folly of the world will be seen as folly, that the wicked will find justice. We pray that your righteous saints, people called out of darkness, will find refuge under the reign of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.